So today we're, we're jumping back into the Gospel of Mark, and so I'm going to invite you this morning to stand with me as we read Mark 13. And we're going to read the whole of Mark 13 because I think it's important for our purposes today. I'm not going to preach through all of Mark 13, um, but I think it's helpful for us to get the whole setting and then to be able to address the introduction of this incredible chapter in God's Word. So if you have your Bibles, that's probably the best way to go. Otherwise, you can follow along up on the screen. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when these things, uh, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious before or beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and the children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look... Here is the Christ, or look, there he is. Do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will rise arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on your guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branches or its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near. At the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things, or all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on your guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, 
in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Lord, we come to you today um, asking for your help and your guidance. Lord, I ask uh, in particular as the mouthpiece for your text today that you would allow my words to reflect your truth and Lord, that you would strengthen us by the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Lord, give us ears to hear and Lord, may we uh, be wise and discerning. And Lord, same time, understanding that this is a very difficult passage of scripture where there are many different interpretations. Lord, allow us to, to settle in on what the text actually says. So, Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? Lord, what, what we are not, would you make us? And, Lord, what we have not, would you give us? In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Our goal, as we've been studying through Mark's gospel, has been to answer three questions. The questions are these, who is Jesus? And of course, Mark is portraying Jesus as the Son of God. The second question is, well, what has Jesus come to do? And the answer to that question is, he has come to give his life a ransom for many through his death on the cross. And the third question is, how should I respond? And if you remember, Mark's gospel is not just an account of Jesus' life. It is a gospel. It is an evangelistic letter. It is a gospel tract, so to speak, to the people who are in Rome. And so it's, it's calling by virtue of its content for those who are reading it to believe and to receive Jesus Christ as that Son of God. And we've seen Jesus minister to the multitudes and individuals through the preaching of the gospel. We've also seen, and I'll call it this, his complementary ministry of care and authentication as he's healed many who were sick. He opened the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. He's cast out demons as well as raised others from the dead. And in all of that, he's been taking time to nurture and grow his disciples through personal triumphs of instruction and counsel. And the last time we were in Mark's gospel, it was a while back, wasn't it? Um, we were in the temple account, the temple um, story, so to speak, where Jesus walks into the temple, begins by him entering the temple and stirring up the money changers and that. Then he goes out of the temple and he comes back again the next day. And we have this record of his encounter with the religious leadership. And if you remember, they selectively chose people to come and ask him, I called them tricky questions. And every question they asked, Jesus had an answer that blew them away. And as a result, they wanted to, they wanted to put him to death. They wanted him out of the way. He exposed their hypocrisy. He exposed their emptiness. He exposed the fact that they really were not worshiping God as God had revealed himself to them and that the actual temple had no longer, was no longer a place of actual worship of the God of Israel. What he found there was, was emptiness in Judaism. And it was a sad, sad state of affairs. Now, as we come to chapter 13, we see Jesus leaving the temple with the disciples. Let me remind you, just by reading it, these first few verses, verses 1 through 4, here's what we read. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another. That will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when, these things, uh, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. And so this morning I want to present to you a proposition. We're going to introduce, so to speak, uh, Mark 13 by looking at these four verses, but we're going to reach into the, the rest of the chapter because I think it's helpful to get a, an awareness of the structure. 
But our goal here is this, to answer this question, are you and I willing to pay attention to Jesus, the prophet who speaks about things to come? He is telling us about future events, and those future events involve the people that he's speaking to. They involve the people that he, this letter is going to, and they involve we who are his children. And so, so we are in the, the, the midst of the discussion, so to speak. There's, there's a place in which we fit into the unfolding of these future events that I think will be helpful to us. Now, I came to faith in Christ in, my, uh, in the, the early 80s um, in a very conservative Christian context where... Uh, both belief and behavior were, were scrutinized. In other words, there were certain things that you had to do in order to, to uh, you know, as far as your behavior is concerned, you know, how you dressed and, and what you did and where you went. And some of that, of course, was, was appropriate and good, but some of it went way too far. That was also true as it relates to beliefs. Because when it came to the subject of eschatology, that's the doctrine of last days, there was only one view that was acceptable. And that one view was the only way you could view these last days. And if you, if you chose to go down a path of, of some other uh, perspective, you were considered in that camp somewhat of a heretic. It was a test of faith. Okay? And so I embraced it. And I, you know, I, I believed it because that's, that's the culture in which I grew up in. And you have to understand this, guys. We all borrow convictions from people that are helping us grow in our Christian walk. But our goal then is to, is to move from the borrowing of those convictions and allow those convictions to be our own. And that's where God wants us to be. And as I grew personally and as a pastor, I became extremely uncomfortable with viewing eschatology as a test of faith. All right? And then one day I was at a, a basics conference. And of course, I'm thinking all these things. A basics conference is a conference for pastors at Alistair Begg's church. Great pastor's conference. I love to go there. And he had three uh, visiting speakers, Eric Alexander, Derek Prime, um, and Dick Lucas. And he affectionately called them Ericy Derricky Dick, which is very Alistair Beggish if you know anything about Alistair. But one of the, during the Q&A time, one of the questions that came from our American you know, pastors was, is it possible for two pastors to serve in the same church who have different views of eschatology? Can there be fellowship among pastors who have different views of eschatology? And all these British guys, one was from Scotland, one was from, uh, from well, actually two of them from England. Of course, you have Alistair from Scotland. They all just kind of looked at each other and laughed. Because they understood that, that that test of faith was very much an American phenomenon. Now, I want to I acknowledge something here. This, this sermon and the next couple of weeks um, could divide us. All right? So if, if you're a card-carrying, pre-trib, pre-mill person, wave your flag in the air. If you're a card-carrying amillennialist, all right, and you say, well, I don't even know what that is, but... If you know what it is, you can wave your flag in the air. You know, go on, wave your flags, and then put them down. Because one of the things that we need to do is we need to let the text of Scripture speak. And what can happen is that we can come to a text like this with our frameworks already determined and then read into the text what is not actually there. And so my desire today is to say, wait a second here, I recognize that there are good Christians who differ on their views of eschatology. And so this is not to be a, a test of orthodoxy, um, kind of like a, not a primary text of orthodoxy, not a top tier like, you know, the, the deity of Christ. That one's pretty important, right? We can't kind of like fudge on that one. Or the Trinity. You've got to be able to hold to that one. All right? Or, or the, the sufficiency and inspiration of Scripture. You've got to hold to that. Those, those are top tier issues. The, the, the return of the Lord is very important, but it is one where good Christians can disagree. However, as we mine God's word, we're going to come to some conclusions. Let me put it this way. Wherever you land will have implications on how you view and live life. Let me give you kind of a perspective. Um, if you are a typical pre-trip, pre-mill, which most of biblical Christianity in the United States would land the plane there, 
Um, they view that the Lord's going to return, there's, uh, there's going to be a rapture, there's going to be seven years tribulation, then there's gonna, the Lord's going to come and there's going to be a millennium, and then he's going to establish his, his reign on the earth. That can lead then to people looking at all the different things that are happening in the world and, and trying to figure out exactly when the Lord is going to return and how and when, and, and you come up with all these, I'm going to say, conspiracy theory approaches, and you miss the point. It's potential. You can miss the point of the fact of his return. If you're Amil, you're not concerned about that because you're saying these things are in the past. Some of these things are not relating to the future. And so a pre-trib person will look at Israel and they'll say, ah, oh, Israel, they're bombings. Great, the Lord's coming, right? And Amil person's like, well, Israel's a pagan nation. They've turned away from God. Okay, And so... You say, so it doesn't, it doesn't affect anything. And so my, my point here is to say that, that your view here, wherever you land the plane, does affect then how you view life and then how you live out of that understanding. Okay? But what, what all the views do agree on is that the Lord is going to return. Okay? And so we want to make sure that that is the priority in our understanding here. And, I, and, and from that perspective, wherever we land the plane today, next week and the week after that, um, still love me, okay? Because I'll still love you. And um, wherever we are on that on that scale, uh, we just say, Lord, we, we're going to hold it. We're going to hold it, but we're going to hold it um, uh, with with a biblical lightness that that is open to correction. Because even with chapter thirteen here, each of the perspectives all have flaws in their understanding. There, there, there are questions that come up that have to be answered. Right? So I just want to say that ahead of time, but we don't just say, well, let's skip it, let's move on. The return of the Lord is incredibly important for us and is central to the church. All right. So having said all that then, Mark 13 is no exception to the difficulty then that we, we have here. It is paralleled in Matthew 25 or 24 and 25, actually a fuller account and then also Luke 21. So we have three Gospels that have this Olivet Discourse. All right? And so this morning, I want to begin by just walking through this text and allowing this text, in particular, verses 1 through 4, unfold for us um, uh, an introduction, an awareness, and really a framework to understanding this, this chapter. So first of all, let's look at what the disciple saw. Now notice in Mark's gospel, it's a single disciple. In Matthew's gospel, it just talks about the disciples, plural. But we want to focus on, on what Mark is saying and allow him to, 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 to speak to us here this morning. It says, uh, the, the disciple uh, came out of this, the, the temple having, having listened to Jesus interact with all these religious leaders. And he says, to Jesus, look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. Now, you just, you just got to either get angry or smile or laugh at this statement, right? You're like, has he not been paying attention? Is he not aware of what is actually taking place here? And there's, there's no small statement here. As Jesus came out of the temple, and it was the last time he would be there. This is no small thing. Now, it isn't surprising that the disciples are overcome with the grandeur of the temple, as all accounts of it during that time tell of an amazing and beautiful structure that, if it were in its glory today, would be the talk of the world. I mean, you think the Taj Mahal is a beautiful thing. It doesn't compare to what the temple once was. Listen to Josephus's Account. Now, Josephus was a historian who was born, I think, around 35 AD, and so his writings take place uh, really around 70 AD. So this is all in the framework where Jesus was recent, the apostles uh, are, are, are ministering the gospel, things are happening. Here is what he says about this temple. The exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye, for being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes, as from the solar rays. To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was a purest white. Some of the stones in the building were 45 cubits in length, 
five in height and six in breadth. The point here is the temple was a wonder to look at. And I think sometimes because we have not experienced that, we may not see the magnitude of how the temple was so central to the people of Israel. And what happened to the temple was a significant uh, interaction for them to, you know, in the history of Israel, you know, when the temple was destroyed and then they, they, they were able to, to build it up again, you know, the whole story of Nehemiah and, and even the book of Haggai, those who were once there at Solomon's temple are looking at it and they're like, it's nothing compared to what it once was, excuse me, what it once was. And then Herod rebuilt this temple and it was beautiful, okay? Now, I remember my wife and I, um, when we took our, our 25-year anniversary a few years ago, we went to England, and we were visiting some friends in a city called Bath, or they would say Bath. Um, and, uh, of course, it's known for its hot springs and stuff. And my friend lived in a town called Froome, which is a little bit outside of Bath, and they said, oh, you've got to go visit the Abbey. You've got to go visit the Abbey. It's so beautiful. So the next day, as we were touring the city, we went and visited the Abbey, and it, it was pretty impressive, um, but then it wasn't. <laughs> and what I mean by that is this. It, it had great history. Kings were coronated in this abbey. Royalty was married in this abbey. It had incredibly beautiful architecture. S the stonework was spectacular. The stained glass windows were amazing. It really was something to behold, but it was also an empty religious shell because it was void of gospel truth. Now, friends, we need to understand that that is a reflection in a small way of what the temple was at that point in time. It was empty. It was flashy. It was beautiful. But the gospel or the, the God presence was gone. Jesus is walking out. And what the disciples saw was the shell of the place where God once dwelled and where he was at the center of worship for Israel. So this, this disciple saw the glamour of these magnificent stones and the beauty of the buildings, but what he failed to see was the emptiness and the failure of the religious leadership of Israel. And friends, we just think about our particular context today. You can go into all sorts of cities around this country, and you can visit beautiful churches, Right? Beautiful, I mean, almost like cathedral-type churches. And here in the States, even, beautiful architecture. You can go again over to Europe and do the same thing like I just talked about, and you will find them beautiful as far as structures are concerned, but empty because they have denied the faith. They've denied that Jesus is the Son of God. They deny that the Bible is God's Word. They've denied so many things that, that the gospel is no longer there. And unfortunately, it's not just when you go to those historical buildings that, are, that our, our Christian culture has even been affected by this as it comes to what we want to you know, call the, the megachurch, for example. Now, this is not true of all megachurches. But um, by and large, American Christian culture is caught up with the wow factor. We're going to find a church that has all the bells and whistles. Man, they've, they've got a beautiful facility, plenty of parking, friendly ushers guiding you in. And when you walk into the building, they have a, a station you can go to to check your children in or to get this and get that. And, and the worship band, they are all professionals. They are incredible. I mean, when, when you hear them play and you sing, it is the most amazing thing. And the kids' ministry is not a kids' ministry. It's a kids' playground where Jesus is mentioned. You know what I'm saying? It's got all sorts of stuff going on as far as the kids are going. Yeah, it's wow. It's, I mean, who could not love that on a human level? And yet what happens in many megachurches is an anemic gospel is preached. The word of God is not really the focus of attention. It's all about the, the, the form. It's not about the substance. Now, friends, I'm not picking on all megachurches out there. Mega can... can, can mean a lot of different things, but there is this, this temptation for, for, for Christians in America to say, I want to look for a church, and what are they looking for? They're looking for all the bells and whistles, rather than what is important. So Israel could say, look at the beautiful temple, and not even recognize that it's a void of the presence of God. And we have to ask ourselves the question, what is it that we are going to be about 
back in the 80s, a couple by the name of Kent and Barbara Hughes um, went out to plant a church in Southern California. They, came, they were, they were um, well-known, gifted, equipped. Uh, Kent was a, a, just a, the, the prime candidate for someone who was going to be successful. And they go out and they, they try and start this church. And it just it fell on its face. It, just, it, just, it was a failure. And they were incredibly discouraged. And out of that experience, they reflect back on that. They were, they were forced to open up God's word and ask the question, what is biblical success? What does it actually look like? And it's a great read if, you haven't, you know, if, you, if you'd like to read it. Liberating Ministry from the, sex, the, the Success Syndrome. It's really an effective book. I read it early on in ministry, and it was a real help to me. But they come down to one particular word, and they're saying, this is what, this is what success is. It's faithfulness. Whether it's a, a large mega church or whether it's a smaller church like ours, what God is concerned about is are these people faithful to me? Faithful to guard the truth, to preach the truth, to build people up in the faith, and not to water down anything that God has said. Faithfulness is key. It's the mark of a healthy church. Well, here we have the disciple looking at this temple, having listened to Jesus and asking these questions, or making these comments, I should say. Now, notice what Jesus saw. Completely different than what the disciples saw. What the disciples saw was a beautiful building, a magnificent building. What Jesus saw was a temple doomed to destruction. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one here, left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He's looking ahead and he is prophesying about the destruction of the temple. Now, what we, what we see here then is, is this, this, this Jesus now taking on this role of prophet. Jesus himself embodies the threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. As king, we understand that he comes to set up his kingdom as the greater David, a kingdom that in the Gospels is an already but not yet reality. And the king has come, but his rule and reign physically is still in the future. He comes as priest to offer up the sacrifice once for all. He is the sacrifice, so he is both savior and sacrifice. But he's also a prophet. And as a prophet, he comes speaking about the things that will take place in the future, both near and far. So I want to walk you through just a little bit because I think it's helpful for us to see that Jesus is going to be functioning here in this prophetical role. Now, the first thing we need to do is go back to the Old Testament, and we need to hear what Moses says about Jesus. So go back to Deuteronomy chapter 18 in your Bibles, Deuteronomy chapter 18, and I want you to pick up here with Moses speaking at verse 15. So Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And of course, Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy. He is the, he is the prophet par excellence. Now, unlike the Old Testament prophets, Jesus was not merely a messenger of the revelation of God, but was himself the source of the revelation of God. All right, so he wasn't just simply a conduit. He was the source. Rather than saying, as the Old Testament prophets did, thus says the Lord, Jesus began his divine uh, authoritative, authoritative teaching by saying, but I say unto you. Right, the prophets may have said this, 
but I'm saying this to you. In other words, I am speaking as a source with authority. And the word of the Lord came to the Old Testament prophets, but Jesus spoke in his own authority as the eternal word of God himself who perfectly revealed the Father to us. And so he takes on this role, and it, it, it's prophesied in the Old Testament. And then we see it kind of developing as we open up the pages of the gospel. Because when Jesus enters into ministry, many of the people listening and experiencing his ministry refer to him as prophet. A couple of examples. When Jesus raised the son of the widow of Nain from the dead, people were afraid and said, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. I mean, that's, that's prophetic language. That's recognizing that he is the fulfillment of, uh, or he is actually a, a, a prophet carrying out prophetical ministry. When Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well something of her past life, she immediately responded, Sir, I perceive, I perceive you are a prophet. I mean, she's, she's recognizing something unique about his role and his ability to see things that a normal person wouldn't see. Now, more specifically, Jesus had a prophetical ministry while on earth. And, and draw your attention to what we already know from Mark's gospel, but what is really important is one of the, or some of the anchor truths there. There are these three predictions or prophecies in Mark's gospel one in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. They all sound very similar, but he's repeating to the disciples, this is what's going to happen. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Mark 9, 31, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. And then in Mark chapter 10, verse 33 through 34, saying, We, or see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Now understand, in the story of the gospel, these things have not yet been fulfilled. They are in process. They're, they're, as we turn to chapter 14, these things are all now going to take place. But this is all prophetic to the disciples. And when these things start happening, you know what the disciples are going to be thinking. But wait a second, he did say this was going to happen. Remember, remember he rebuked Peter because Peter said, no, no, this can't happen. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Peter had to conform to what he, what God was saying the Messiah was going to do, not what Peter or the Jewish culture wanted him to do. And then we also have here the prediction about rising or raising the temple after three days. Now, we actually find this in the chronology of the interaction with Jesus and the religious leadership in John's gospel. Mark doesn't actually have it in that account but in John's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 19, it says, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, of course, they thought he was talking about what? The actual temple. But what he was talking about was himself prophetically. But what Mark does do is in chapter 14 and chapter 15, when people are bringing accusations against him, here's what they say in chapter 14, verse 58. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. And then as he's hanging on the cross, people passed by and were mocking him, wagging their heads. It's, a, it's part of the mocking kind of persona. And they said, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? And what they didn't realize is that he was hanging on the cross being destroyed. And that he would rise again in three days. So here we read, you know, as we've gone through here, we've seen Jesus as a prophet. He has this prophetic ministry. And some of these prophetic statements are things that are going to be happening in the near future and now, as we turn to Mark 13, there are going to be some things that happen in the more distant future. He says, not one stone will be left upon another, speaking about the temple. They will all be thrown down. 
And just remember, the temple was the heart of Jerusalem, it was the heart of Israel, and it was the heart of worship. And it will be destroyed. And for the Jews, this is a prophecy about the end of the world. You remove the temple, it is for them the end. Now, let's continue on. Because it doesn't end there. Notice what the disciples asked. I'm sure if you were listening to all this, you would be like, huh? What do you mean? How is this going to happen? When is this going to happen? And that's exactly what they do. We have these four disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And they're meeting with Jesus privately on the Mount of Olives, looking at the beautiful temple that's before them. And they say, tell us when these things will be. And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Tell us when these things will be. In other words, when will this destruction of the temple take place? And the next question, how will we know when it will take place? What indicators will there be so that we can know that it will be taking place? Now, it's natural for the disciples to hear Jesus' words and be curious about the time and the sequence of events. And friends, we're so often consumed with the timing of events that tell us of his coming rather than the reality of our joy at his coming. I want to make that distinction. It's so easy to get caught off track. In my years of pastoral ministry, this has been my experience with a number of people who tend toward end times theology. They, they kind of walk it, they live it, they breathe it, they're listening to it, they're, they're reading websites about it, they're reading books about it, and they spend their bulk of their time trying to ascertain the orchestration of world events and conspiracy theories in order to know when the Lord will return. You know, something happens in the world, ah, it's an indicator the Lord is going to come. And, and they spend all their time doing that, and what they forget is that the return of the Lord is to be a time that is our hope. It is a time of joy. And what ends up happening is that they focus all their time on thinking about the end and forgetting about living now, God, what God wants them to do now. Now, if there's one thing in, in Mark 13, and was also in our study of 1 Thessalonians, is that it teaches us that we don't know when we're uh, we don't know when, and we are not to be concerned about when. What we are to be consumed with is the hope that he is coming. Now, even some try to say things like this. Well, the Bible doesn't say we can't, the Bible says we can't know the day or the hour, but that doesn't mean we can't know the month or the year. Which just betrays the whole point of the, the statement and the language. The whole point of saying you're not going to know the day or the hour is saying you're not going to know. But you see how our minds work. And some people just won't stop because people love to have their ears tickled. And quite frankly, guys, there's, there's a sensationalism that comes with it all. So, so as Jesus responds to the disciples' questions, he really doesn't give them what they want. He doesn't give them the full-blown answers to their questions. They want specifics. They want to know when. They want to know what signs. And they're confused, and they're having difficulty comprehending his words. The temple will be destroyed? How could that happen? It's so beautiful. I mean, it's been central to the nation of Israel for so long. And God had restored it again and again. But if this were to happen, this would be the end. And what we need to make sure that we understand is that although the disciples asked these questions, Mark 13 is not about signs and timetables. This passage is not given to us so that we can create charts and timetables about future events. To be sure, it does give us a little bit of a framework about end times, but it's not just kind of like these, 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 these charts that are just, you know, you're going to put on your wall and just going to see everything. That's not the point. It is really a call to living rightly in light of the hope of his coming. It's a call to, and I'm going to give you five things just briefly here, it's a call to careful discernment. You're going to see throughout this text, See, see. It's actually translated in, in our Bibles, be on your guard. It's the, 
Greek word blepo, which means see. It's a commitment to unwavering loyalty to Christ in the face of persecution. It's a commitment to faithful discipleship. It's a commitment to faithful missions or evangelism. And it's a commitment or a call to confident hope in his return. Now, those are the things that we're going to cover in the next couple of weeks. But God is more concerned about how we are living than if we know the exact framework and timing of everything that's going to happen with his return. I want you to, I just want to caution you. Whatever eschatological flag you want to wave, just be careful that you don't miss the point. Okay? So this is what the disciples asked. Now, we want to kind of move more in toward what Jesus the prophet announced. And that's the rest of the chapter. And we're going to kind of give it a kind of a brief overview and then come back to it the next couple of weeks. But notice how Jesus responds. By the way, this is the longest uninterrupted sermon that Jesus gives in Mark's gospel. And it's different than anything we've seen so far in this gospel. Now just stop, step back a little bit. Let's just talk a little bit about genres. Right? A genre is a certain uh, kind of writing. Uh, you know, the Bible is a collection of 66 books written over the course of 1,500 years in a variety of genres, right? So you have narrative, you have poetry, you have discourse, which would be the letters. Um, you have wisdom, you have prophecy, you have apocalyptic, and you have gospels. And what we are in right now is the genre of gospels. Now, what's unique about gospels is within the genre of gospels, we recognize that there are a number of genres within gospels. <laughs> you have narrative. You have some poetry, you have some discourse going on as Jesus is interacting with people, depending on the, the actual gospel. John's gospel, you're going to have much more discourse. But you also then have this apocalyptic genre. That's what chapter 13 is. Now, usually when you think of apocalyptic, your mind goes to the books of Daniel or the book of Revelation, where God speaks through images and symbols that are not necessarily of this world. They're kind of out of this world, right? This beast coming out of the ocean. Does that mean in the future there's actually going to be a beast with so many horns? Or is that beast representing something? You see what I'm saying? And your genre helps you then interpret how you approach that. Let me just kind of paint the picture a little bit more for you. Um, I, I made a list for our, our trip to Costco. You guys ever go to Costco? You have that Costco list at home, right? You know, it's like eggs, bacon, um, uh, food that you shouldn't be eating, but I'm going to get it anyway, um, right? All that stuff, right? You have that list, right? And then, and then you have like your, your um, devotional kind of journal. And this is what God is teaching me, that kind of stuff, right? And then um, if, you're a, if you, this is what you do, you have a, you know, a love letter written to your spouse. Now, I could read that love letter like I read a Costco list, all right? All right? Beautiful hair. I love your teeth. Um, let's see. Um, the way you smile. Um, you know, you just kind of go, it's just, it's just kind of like, all right, check, 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 check. I checked them all off, honey. This is what I think. Fold it up in a piece of paper that was stuffed in your wallet, right? Flip it around. You could read your Costco list like a love letter. <laughs> oh, we got to get some eggs. Not the little ones, but the big ones, you know. <laughs> we got we to get some of that, you know, some of that, that, some of that bacon that sizzles, the thick cut bacon. Okay. Right? Now, my, my point here is this, that the kind of writing changes how you actually read that writing. And so when you enter into different genres, you've got to kind of think a little differently about how you approach that genre. If I'm reading a love letter from my wife, I'm going to read it understanding this is a love letter from my wife. Right? 
And it's going to say all sorts of wonderful things about me, I'm sure, that just are, you know, it's going to be pages and pages full of stuff. And, no, that's mine to her. Mine's like, you know. Um, you understand, though, that, that you approach it differently. And so when we come to this chapter, you've got to say, I've got to shift my thinking. This is not, not, not narrative anymore. We're in a narrative section just looking at the interaction with Jesus and his disciples, but then it becomes prophecy. It becomes apocalyptic. Now, this is not apocalyptic like Revelation and Daniel. We have all these kind of otherworldly images, but there are things that are happening here that make this apocalyptic because it's about future events, and there's some rules that might help us to think things through. So just understand what we have here is apocalyptic. It's all part of prophetical um, ministry, right? And there's four or three things that I think I want us to see here about this. First of all, as we read the rest of this prophecy, uh, number one, his return is certain. And I just, I want you to, just with your eye, look at some of the words from Christ that are listed here. The word will, for example. The word will it's used over 25 times in this text in a number of different ways, but it emphasizes the certainty of the events. All these events are described in such a way as that they will happen. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he. Nation will rise against nation. There will be earthquakes and famine. They will deliver you over. You will be beaten. You will stand before rulers. False prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead people astray. Stars will be falling from heaven. Powers in the heaven will be shaken. They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Just in case you're wondering, this will happen. But not only that, there's the word must, right? And it's used a couple of times, uh, verses 6 and 7, uh, and emphasizes again the certainty of the events prior to his return. This is false Christ, wars and rumors of wars must take place. The gospel must be proclaimed to all the nations. So there's some, there's some things. This will happen, but there are some things that have to happen in the fact that it is going to happen. All right? So his return is certain. Now, friends, there, there is support with this, not only from the words of Christ, but also from the apostles. And I could have uh, pulled from a lot of different places, but I want to at least uh, just remind you of what the apostle Paul has said, Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14. Just listen to what he says there. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our what? Blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous of good works. It's talking about the Lord's return and how we are to live in anticipation of the Lord's return. And then, as we've gone through the book of 1 Thessalonians, five times, chapter, at the end of each chapter, there's a statement about the Lord's return. Let me just remind you of chapter 1 and then chapter 5. Chapter 1 beginning at verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Again, talking about his return. Chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the book of Philippians says it a little bit differently. It talks about the day of the Lord as that return of Christ. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Or a little few, few verses down, Philippians 1.10, so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Again, in anticipation of that day. Chapter 2, verse 16, holding fast the word of life, so in that day I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Now, he's thinking about not only the Lord's return, but standing in the presence of the Lord and giving an account, which happens after he returns. Okay? So the point here is this. There is this understanding, even among the apostles, that the Lord is coming again. 
and it's part of the fabric of the message of the gospel and the hope that we have in Christ. So the certain return of the Lord to establish his kingdom is at the heart of the message of the Bible. But now I want to talk to you a little bit about Sesame Street, okay? Um, his return is ordered. If you, I put out a thing on the city, I don't know if you caught it, but it went to my blog. And this is when I think about prophecy, I'm always reminded of um, Sesame Street in particular. Growing up in this country in younger years, you know, Sesame Street was a big part of my life. You know, I, I know what I know who Groucho is. Um, um, Big Bird, you guys know who Big Bird is? Snuffleupagus or whatever his name is, right? Who's the one that lived in the trash can? Oscar. Oscar the Grouch. I was mixing them up, right? But, but, but Gon- or Grover here is, is, is the one that I just, um, I, I love. And there's this near-far sketch that he does, and it's great. And if you haven't seen it, I'm not going to play it out. But he basically, he comes up to the camera, and he's like, near? And then he, and he goes back, far, you know? And then he comes back, near, far, near, far. And, and friends, I, I think of that when I think of, Bible prophecy, in particular in Mark chapter 13, because it helps give a perspective and an awareness and an understanding of of a dynamic of prophecy that includes the near and also includes the far. And let me kind of explain a little bit. I know there's a picture up on the screen, but just think through what my experience here uh, just happened a couple weeks ago. My first time ever driving down to Phoenix and when you go down on Highway 10, you start driving through the desert, and as you're going through the deserts, you see these mountains start to rise up, right? And you see, you see like a multiple group of mountains, and you're like, oh, there's one in front, and there's one behind. There's like just multiple mountains back there, and you're like, oh, okay, this is kind of cool. I'm going to get out of the desert. I'm going to see some mountains. And finally, you know, you, you get past one of those mountains, and you're thinking, well, I thought this next mountain was going to be right there, but you find out. There's a big distance between that first mountain and that second mountain because you're only seeing it from one perspective. So what looks like something that is near to you, that is behind a mountain, is actually a long way away. And so from a prophetical perspective, there are things that are presented in Scripture, in prophecy, that have a near fulfillment but also are spoken of as being immediately next, as actually being quite far away. Okay, so just it's, it's a perspective that helps us then understand how prophecy works. There is a time gap in between the near and the far fulfillment. All right, and so that's helpful. It's helpful for me, and I hope it's helpful for you. So the prophecy Jesus gives us in Mark 13, and here's kind of like a, a structure of the chapter. And by the way, I think structure is really important to understanding this chapter. Structure drives the, 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 the interpretation of the chapter and so you, you have to say, okay, then what is the structure? Well, first of all, you have the introduction, which we just looked at, but you have this prophecy then. There's this near, which is the destruction of the temple and the things surrounding all of that in chapter five, sorry, verses 5 through 23. That's something that's going to happen pretty soon. It's going to happen in AD 70. And then you have this far uh, event, this future judgment, the, the Lord's return in power and glory, and that's uh, verses 24 through 27. And then verses 28 through 37 are kind of recapping explanations, illustrations, and applications of his return. And I'll give you two markers there, the illustration of the fig tree, which is near, and then the illustration of the man going on a journey, and you don't know when he's going to return. And so that might be a lot to take in, but I'm trying to give you at least a structural understanding of how this chapter unfolds, how this works. And there are some key markers in the text that we'll get into a little bit more next week that kind of distinguish these separations and these transitions. But you have this near prophecy. Now, we need to think through this a little bit because the destruction of the temple um, was in the future, but the destruction of the temple was in the lifetime of these disciples. Just kind of put that in perspective, okay? So, The third thing then is, not only is his return certain and his return is ordered, but his return is also uh, uh, something that demands our responsibility. And I want to give you four words just to kind of 
that, that flow out of some of the themes in this chapter that, that might help us kind of think through and prepare for our time uh, in the next couple of weeks. First of all, the word listen. Listen to this prophecy. Let it counsel and guide you. Now look at verse 37. He finishes this all by saying, what I say to you, I say to who? To all. All right, in other words, he wants us to listen. He wants us to hear what he is saying. He wants us to, uh, to, to listen, to consider, to, to seek to understand. Secondly, it's the word look. And that's where we get that, that expression, be on your guard. It's throughout this prophecy. It literally means not just seeing, but seeing with discernment. So it means be discerning. You're going to see religious upheaval with false Christ saying, I am he. You're going to see political upheaval, wars and rumors of wars and nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom. You're going to see some cosmic upheaval, earthquakes and famines. But he says, don't be alarmed. The end is not yet. Okay? So be discerning. And <laughs> a little side note. If you go online and you see anything that says such and such discernment ministries typically run away because they're often not very discerning, okay? Um, but we are called to be discerning. Third, learn, learn. When you comprehend the truth of Jesus' words, may they assure you, they may assure you of what is yet to come. Now turn your Bibles to John chapter 19, and I want to I show you something, and, and hopefully this will, you know, the, the penny will start to drop as you begin to see this and see how this prophecy stuff that Jesus is doing with his disciples is working. He doesn't give prophecy just to throw it out there and say, well, you're going to be ignorant of it. He, there's a reason for it. There's a reason for it for his original audience. Look at chapter 2 of John's Gospel, and in particular, verses 19 and following. Well, let's pick it up at verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you, uh, will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Now verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples, what? Remembered that he had said this, and they, what? Believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. For the disciples, the penny dropped. Jesus prophesied. They understood what he was prophesying, and what did it cause them to do? To believe, and in particular, believe the scriptures. All right? Now, if you think about that, then you can also think about the fact of what Jesus is doing. He's given this prophecy about what's going to happen to him. He's going to be taken by the authorities, both the Jews and the Gentiles. He's going to be killed, and he's going to be buried, and he's going to rise again. What happened? Exactly what Jesus said would happen. So when the disciples recognize the destruction of the temple, what's going to happen to them? They're going to say, Jesus, who prophesied this, is to be believed. It's just going to reinforce the fact that what he is saying is true. And part of prophecy is, is clarification like that. So the penny drops. And so for us, it's an opportunity to learn that this prophecy is not just given, given us necessarily to go out there and to, to figure out all the end times. It's also to say, I believe in who Jesus is. It's another verification that he is the son of God. Okay? And then the last one would be live. Live. Because this, this actually is another word that we find in the second part of this prophecy. And it's stay awake in our Bibles. But it literally means this. Be faithful. Be faithful. And be faithful doing what? Preaching the gospel, not being anxious, enduring to the end, not being deceived. These are all themes that come out of this, this whole prophecy. Not being overcome with the when, but being more focused on the what. Now, friends, this is, yes, this is an introduction. 
in one sense, but it's also getting to where we're at because I think, I think in this church, we're kind of all over the place wondering about the Lord's return. And let's just, let's just do a couple of things as we bring it to a close here together. Some concluding thoughts to help us kind of process all this. Number one, we must let the text speak. Not our frameworks. All of you walked in today with some frameworks. You all did. You know, either said, well, you know, I'm a pre-trip, pre-mill person, I'm an all-mill person, I'm a um, post-trip type person, or I'm a I-have-no-idea type person, or something along those lines. You come in with a framework of, of, of understanding. And, and what I'm asking you to do, what we always want to do is we want to come to the text raw, in a sense, we want, we want the text then to be what is teaching us. We want to be detectives to figure out what is there so that we can come to a right conclusion. If we come to a text and say, well, I already know what that is, and, and we put our framework on it, then we end up forcing square pegs into round holes, and we actually miss what the text is saying. Now, I'm not saying this to say I'm, I'm trying to knock down anyone's eschatological view. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is the text must rule not our framework. And that is true across the board when it comes to study of God's word. Always allow the scripture, the text, to be studied naturally in its context. Would the disciples have understood what Jesus was saying (laughs) if you are bringing your framework to this passage? What was natural for these disciples based on the context and what's going on? Secondly, secondly, let Christ be central not dates and charts. Let Christ be central. Friends, we, we can so easily be caught up in eschatology or our view of last days and forget that it's actually about Christ and forget the point of that. I want to read verse 4 of the song that we sang this morning, How Great Thou Art, and just want you to listen to it. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, What joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. That's what we are going to proclaim when we are standing or bowing in his presence when he returns. We're not going to be saying, Lord, I figured out the timetable. It's about him. It's about his return. It's about our glorification. It's about our being reunited with him. And certainly some frameworks are going to be in there that will help us get some perspective of that. But let's remember, it's about being with Christ. And sometimes I even think in Christianity, we've forgotten Christ (laughs) in the midst of all. Do Do we love him? Do we long for him? Do we want to see him? If he is our hope, And certainly, let's be ready, and let's not allow some things to distract us. And then finally, as we go through this, we need to let the gospel be proclaimed. And I'll invite you to get your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 11, because we're going to celebrate the Lord's table here in just a minute. And I think this is helpful to understand, because the Lord himself gave instructions, and um, the Apostle Paul um, identifies that in his instructions on the Lord's table. We'll pick it up at verse 23, 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until what? Until he comes. So even the celebration of the Lord's table is to be celebrated in anticipation of his coming. You see, the Lord's return is, is at the heart of our Christian walk. It's at the heart of the word of God. It's at the heart of the message of the gospel. It is our hope. It is what we long for. It is what we look for. Samuel Rutherford, I think, gives some final counsel here. He says, have your head in the heavenlies, 
your hand on the plow, and your feet on the ground. Now, this talk of future events can remove us from present realities, but the hope of the future is to guide us in the present and to live our lives in a way that would honor and glorify him. And as we've kind of gone over some introduction here today, I hope it at least gives you some perspective as we will jump ahead in the next couple of weeks into Mark 13. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your gospel. And Lord, sometimes we are all surprised at what we come up against. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are receptive to your truth. And we ask, Lord, that you would strengthen us even over these next few weeks, Lord, to allow your text to speak. And Lord, may it strengthen and encourage us. May it guide us. May it, may it give us counsel for how we are to live our lives on this earth in anticipation of your coming. Longing for it, looking for it, um, but Lord, living our lives in light of it in such a way that we will bring honor and praise to your name. And uh, Lord, now as we celebrate the Lord's table, we ask that we would do it in such a way that would truly reflect what you have done in our lives. We give you all the praise and glory for who you are in your name. Amen.